This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Well, social media was certainly a big focus leading up to Election Day and even on that day as well, and still is even after we got through last Tuesday's election. But how did the social media platforms perform overall? Pinar Yodiram is an assistant professor of marketing at the Wharton School and joins us on the phone. Pinar, great to talk to you again. Hope you and the family are doing well. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right. So I guess let's start overall. And obviously so much was made about uh, all that these platforms were going to have to deal with. How do you view social media as a whole? How did they do over the course of the election cycle? I see social media as an integral part of elections, and its influence certainly compared to 2016 has grown. I think we had an exceptional year, an extraordinary year, as far as social media's influence on elections, and there were um, circumstances such as COVID-19, which made that influence even stronger because of the, the the amount of time that we spend in front of our computers on social media as well as the opportunities that uh, COVID-19 has given to politicians and individuals in in terms of spreading misinformation. So I think social media had an enormous influence in 2020 compared to 2016. And and I think the the biggest focus was going to be on Facebook and Twitter uh, making announcements about that they were going to, you know, either tag misinformation or, you know, lead uh, lead viewers of this content to, you know, information about uh, the elections, the vote in different states, et, et cetera. President Trump uh, sent out the, the tweet on election night feeling that uh, that he believed that uh, the election was trying to be stolen from him. And, and that information was tagged by Twitter and, and led to a different site showing about the election. So I think overall it was a, it was an important time for these companies as we move ahead with social media being so important in our lives. Yes. So going into 2020, we knew that social media platforms would have to do a lot more as far as not just election, but in general about the, the misinformation problem. This is because there was a lot of interference in 2016 election, and we knew that there was plenty of misinformation that was especially spread to social media compared to other, other sources. And uh, in the expectation of the 2020 election and how tense this election is going to be, the social media platforms understood that they would have to do a lot more. They were also being criticized a lot more very publicly by their customers, by the, uh, by the Congress. And they started uh, taking action early in 2020. For instance, Twitter announced that they wouldn't even accept political advertising, which was a big move for them. Even though political advertising is a small piece of their overall advertising pie, it is still quite a significant action to be able to say no to an advertiser in an election year. Facebook followed um, and Google followed with some announcements with regards to how political advertisers might target audiences, but they didn't stop there. They started changing some of the, the backgrounds related to the algorithms. For instance, Facebook said that it would start giving more prominence to to the information coming from your friends and your immediate social circle as opposed to publishers. And this was, again, an attempt to try to reduce the influence of third parties and the information that they spread relative to our immediate friends and family who might be less incentivized to to engage in in spread of social media uh, misinformation spread. 
but on top of that, they started, and I, in my opinion, they started a little late on doing this. They started tagging information post by post. And we started seeing this by Facebook first. Yeah. Facebook started posting uh, some some labels on information on content that was uh, especially related to elections. Twitter later on, I think quite late in the race, they started labeling information, including posts by the by the president, uh, stating that these information may not have the, the information or the claims that are made in posts may not have yet been confirmed. Or uh, if you want to, for instance, get some more information, you could potentially check out some other alternate links and, and resources. So they started labeling information. They started labeling content. But in my opinion, they started doing this quite late. And in mm -hmm. some ways, they started doing this quite ineffectively. So what what do you believe needs to occur for them to be more effective, and that being said, is is this going to be the new norm for these companies? Does it have to be with kind of the scope of, of our political landscape right now? Yes, I think this is going to continue moving forward because we don't expect misinformation to become less of a problem anytime soon, especially not uh, certainly in the aftermath of the election in the next couple weeks and next couple months. There will be more claims potentially related to the election results and what happened during the election that might be spreading as misinformation, and there will be discussions among individuals. So social media platforms need to take more action and they need to calm down people. This is especially important for their own business because the tense environment on social media with regards to the politics is hurting their bottom line as well as it's hurting or, or, or society. The second thing, as far as the, the effectiveness of these these tags. So when we look at what Facebook has done, Facebook started early on putting some tags that indicated that in, in information that's posted was potentially related to elections. And if you needed more information with regards to elections, you could visit certain, certain links. They did it in a very um, non-discriminating way. The it wasn't clear whether information was, was false or whether the information was incomplete, or whether they just wanted you to be more active in, in searching for information. They didn't differentiate between the content. They just simply put out these uh, very non-discriminating information or labels. And in many ways, people disregard. When you start seeing the same uh, line of information under every post, you start disregarding them. You simply do not pay attention to them after some time. I think that's what happened with Facebook's posts. With Twitter, um, Twitter was a little more effective in some way, but the, the thing that they did was that these, these labels came really late in the election. Um, there was a lot of misinformation that was spread around, especially with regards to COVID-19 throughout Twitter. And for the majority of 2020, Twitter did not put any labels indicating that these information were not confirmed yet. Uh, it could be potentially misleading. The account was, you know, somehow maybe unconfirmed, unverified to be able to spread these information. So they haven't provided information for a long part of 2020. Later, closer to the election, they started labeling information in a more discriminating way. They, they were able to separate between claims that were potentially being discussed. They, for instance, election results that were not yet announced. Um, or other things. For instance, if you're trying to engage in spread of information without really uh, having read that information, they now start warning you 
would you like to read the text before you actually retweet this information? Right? They, they are right. trying to take a more active approach and trying to make individuals think before they post. And uh, this is going to be a little more effective than Facebook's approach, but at the end, people start questioning <laughs> who's right and who's wrong, right? If you believe in a certain account, or if, let's say, you're a supporter of Trump, and if right. Twitter starts saying, telling you that the information that Trump is posting has not been confirmed, do you question Trump or do you question Twitter? Or do you trust Trump or do you trust Twitter? Right. So it's going to be a little bit of a, a struggle for these platforms to be able to make themselves the authority to believe. And, and hopefully they'll get it right, or hopefully they'll do it in a way that doesn't um, create a mistrust between the users of the platform and themselves, because otherwise this is going to start hurting their baseline in some way. Right? So people will start questioning Twitter's incentives, Twitter's motives, and they might start uh, leaving the platform to go to other alternate places that might be even more somehow polarized and, and more conservative or, or, or more extreme liberal, let's put it that way. Right. There might be some more, uh, some more niche platforms in some sense. Well, I, I wanted to ask you. Might migrate. I wanted to ask you about that, Pinar, because uh, we talked earlier in the show a little bit about this site, Parler, uh, which is considered an option for uh, many on the on the right uh, as a way to be able to have the 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 free speech they believe that they are not getting from Facebook and Twitter because of some of the moves that that those social sites have made. It brings a unique dynamic into play here for what will be the future of social media, especially if they stay, uh, if they stay in that kind of mode? Absolutely. So this is with regards to what I was just mentioning. If consumers feel that they cannot express what they think is happening, even if that's not correct, or if they feel like some of the parties that they want to listen to is somehow blocked or censored or uh, labeled by the platform they might start migrating to other alternate platforms. And, and Parlay is one of the, the alternate platforms that's positioning itself in the marketplace right now as a free speech, no censorship, no labeling uh, platform. And, it, and it's not the only one. There are other alternative ones that are somehow trying to differentiate themselves as a, a less moderated content, a more free speech platform. And eventually one of the, the disadvantages or one of the downsides of more active content moderation might be precisely this. We might actually create incentives for the users to go to these alternate places where they only speak to and talk to and hear from people like them, right? these right. small niche platforms where it's almost like a club for like-minded people. They might start migrate, migrating to these places, and that would hurt our society. That would also hurt some at least platform baseline, bottom line, that would hurt our society in the sense that we would not be able to hear from others who think very differently from us. We would not be able to engage in a conversation potentially right. to be able to resolve the differences. That creates a much more polarized environment on the Internet. So that's the downside of a potentially more active content moderation. But there is no question to it, Dan, in my opinion, that platforms will have to take actions, and they will eventually be even stricter, potentially, in trying to deal with the issue of misinformation because it's a very big problem. So what about then either blocking sites or removing tweets? That That's obviously, a, I think, a kind of a last-ditch resort for these social platforms, and, and 
the, the blocking of, of accounts and sites has occurred. We've seen that pop up. Uh, but the impact that that has on uh, on this overall want to, you know, kind of monitor what is going on on their sites. And, and then the other question that, Pinar, is, is the fact that is, you know, Facebook and Twitter, specifically those sites, took a lot of heat for not policing their sites for, for a long period of time. Do you think they have the wherewithal and the will to do what needs to be done in many cases? Um, starting from the, the literal question, I think they do have the bill because they realize that this is hurting themselves and in many different ways. This is creating a pressure on them from the, the, the Congress. This is creating a pressure from advertisers because advertisers also, if you uh, going back to summer, if you remember, they decided to, to pull ads from Facebook and likes. Uh, just because they thought that they weren't doing enough in terms of preventing the spread of misinformation. There is also lots of pressure from users. Users, uh, especially the more sophisticated ones, they have a, a distaste for misinformation and they do not want to engage in platforms that they think is actually um, is the source of spread of misinformation. So it's hurting them in multiple ways and they are... They are, they are determined, they are interested in taking an action to be able to prevent the spread of misinformation. The problem with misinformation is that it spreads really fast because it's typically information that's new and that's somehow sensational. People, the innocent people, they're just the random users, they engage in the spread of misinformation and it spreads, um, as we know, about six times faster than correct information. So by the time you decide to take an action, by the time you realize something is, is incorrect, it's already spread deeply into the network, into the social network. So it's a, it's a difficult problem. You have to act really fast. And that's yeah. why um, many of these you know, other actions towards having people on the platform actively engage in preventing or flagging information as incorrect. Those type of actions have been also uh, have been on the side taken by different platforms. So uh, yes, I think they will have to continue to do things. There's no doubt about that. One, fi- one final question for you, Pinar. Then, what are you what are you most watching right now to see from these platforms moving forward? Are, are there specific elements that you would like to see them address as we move ahead? A um, couple, couple things. So as many others are watching, I'm also watching this content moderation practice. They are, they are evolving practically week by week. We see new implementations of spread of uh, misinformation, and it's either flagging or, or use of um, the, the, the users, uh, crowdsourcing flagging of information, or having fact-checkers on the side. I am watching these platforms in terms of how they are going to eventually evolve to find a way. But I'm also watching the users because, as I mentioned, as I alluded to before, I don't think that the reaction of the consumers will be that straightforward. I don't think that consumers will simply say, oh, and Twitter has just labeled this information as potentially inaccurate or incomplete. So let me just trust Twitter and, and not leave this information. I don't think consumers will respond in such a simple way. So I'm also going to be watching the, the response of the consumers. How are they going to, to take these labels, the, these this additional layers of censorship in some sense or, or content moderation by the platforms? Are they going to be staying on the platforms? Are they going to believe the information that platforms are providing? Or are they going to be migrating to these alternate platforms where free speech is, is, uh, is the sort of selling point? So those are the things that I'm looking for right now. Pinar, great to talk to you as always. Thanks very much for your time. Look forward to seeing you back on campus at some point. 
Thank you so much for having me. Chris. Thank you. Pinar Yildirim, who is Assistant Professor of Marketing at the Wharton School. To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.